welcome to another episode of Three Wise DMs, the podcast where three dungeon masters who've been doing this for way too long talk about all the things we do to try to make our games as good as they can be. I'm Thorne, and I'm joined by... Tony. We were born before the wind, also younger than the sun. If the body boat was one as we sailed into the mystic. Wow, wow, that's a good call for this. Right? Ben Morrison, Into the Mystic. Love that tune. Great tune, great tune. It is a perfect, that is a perfect segue because we are really talking about this. Today we're talking about the games where you really do sail into the mystic. Or into the grim and gritty, or into the space maybe, or undersea, or whatever kind of sailing you're thinking about doing. Today's episode, we're going to talk about how do you do seafaring campaigns? How do you do campaigns where they maybe go underwater in a submarine? Campaigns where they maybe go out to space in a star jammer? Essentially, this subset of campaigns is really about life on a ship. And how is that? How do you run those? How are they different from normal campaigns? How do you balance it and make sure your players have fun with them? Because we've done some that are a little touchy. Sometimes the party doesn't react the way you expect. So that's what we're talking about today. How do you do sailing campaigns, whatever you're sailing through, whatever the medium is you're sailing through? How do you do it? How do you make sure your players have fun? And uh, Tony, why don't we start with you? Because you were, the last time I was in a campaign where we had a boat and one of the players was literally named Captain was in your second edition game. How'd that go? Well, that was kind of an opportunity to use the environment where it's like, okay, I'm going to have some specialized uh, water encounters. Uh, And there were points where, yeah, you were on the ship and you were chilling and you had time to kill. It was a big ship. Let me be clear. It was like a galleon. It wasn't like you guys were six people in a rowboat because that would have got a little rough, you know, an hour into it. How deep did you get into kind of the logistics of sailing in that? Well, I don't know if you remember, we had a couple of uh, fun uh, ship-to-ship battles. Yeah, yeah, that was cool. That was interesting. And then when you're doing it, you're actually sailing around in a ship, and you run into a big encounter. Well, I can't believe this. The guys on your ship are going to want to use their cannons and the battering ram and crazy shit like that. So <laughs> you got to factor that again. One thing I remember from that, having been a player in it, and being a wizard in that, was that, okay, the cannons are neat. But we really did run into situations when it came to combat. We were like, okay, but I'd rather like use my spells or use these things that I'm specialized in. And one of the tricky things is once once you get in mid- and see combat, well, now your players are trying to use these other things they didn't build their characters around. Like, I, I do remember that being a bit of a struggle sometimes. And I'm like, yeah, look, this kind of is great, but it doesn't do the damage my fireball will do. Just let me shoot them. You're absolutely right. And that's why you have your minions fire the cannons. <laughs> that's right yeah ship we I, I i see i think we call them crew but yes minions minions very good i'll never be able to remember that campaign without thinking of little one-eyed yellow figures again <laughs> what about you dave any um, nautical or sea vessel typing ca- uh, campaigns you've done so full campaigns no even though i will say uh i had p- one of the campaigns i pitched to you guys when we decided on curse of strahd was a kind of a pirate-themed campaign, I believe, Um, one of the the four choices or whatever there were. So 
Uh, I absolutely have had a plan to uh, to do kind of a seafaring nautical based campaign for a while. Um, I haven't been able to use it to that level. So I've done it more in terms of they're traveling from this area to this area and it's on a ship. Um, so I haven't been really been able to get into some of the nitty gritty of it because I haven't had the the <laughs> players that have necessarily wanted to to uh, go down that thing. This is making me think a little bit, though, about uh, Tony's Underdark fiasco, right? Mm -hmm. And why That's I was nice. saying pitching this campaign, because it sounds awesome and pirates are cool. And just make sure that everyone's on board, literally, right? Literally on board the ship or else you're going to be they're going to go to an island and want to stay there. Right. Uh, which is one of the nice things about this is that in the end you can, this is just more flavoring almost of a normal D and D adventure. You're just placing it in different terrain. You're placing it with different skill challenges, let's say some different encounters, those types of things. It definitely has some unique flavor, but I don't think it's anything so scary that, you have to overthink it if you want to go and run something out at sea. What did you want to include? Like, what made you want to do the at sea campaign? Like, what kind of elements did you think you were looking forward to play with? Yeah, I want to. Uh, I wanted to play with um, some of the characters. In essence, learning some of the craft of the ship itself. You know, taking on certain jobs within the ship. I definitely was impressed and inspired a little bit. Matt Mercer had done it in critical role. He had them for a, a poor portion of the of the story arc, they were on a ship and they all had different roles that they were learning and they had some different adventures with like pirate islands and things like that. And I was like, oh, that's really something you can start to sink your teeth into and also use it as a vehicle to get to another portion of the adventure that that's maybe on the other side of the continents or something like that, you know, other side of the world. So it doesn't even have to be the entire thing. But yeah, I would definitely like them to be working on the ship, not just like what Tony said with the minions, but literally being part of the crew or maybe even captaining the ship in some way at some point, maybe. Maybe they've taken this ship over, you know. Uh, and then some of the some of the encounters that you can do at sea that you really can't do elsewhere. Dragon turtles. Always dragon turtles. That's like Dragons. number one, right? Where else do you put it? Where else does he go? <laughs> he doesn't go anywhere else. No one's ever done that encounter where they land on the dragon turtle shell and think it's an island. That's a unique idea. Oh, Avatar <laughs> style, right? What about you, Tony, when you did it? Like, what kind of thing were you hoping to kind of play out when you were at sea? Or was it like, or, or a player drove that, didn't it? Wasn't there, there was a player who wanted to be that? No, I, you started out in Magnesia and that had a seaport. And I right. kind of had a very strong feeling the campaign would be going in that direction. So eventually I rewarded the players with a ship. So you have this opportunity to go out there and explore the ocean, the islands, et cetera, et cetera. When you're doing that, there's two things to consider. I would really kind of make that intention clear, like Dave said in the beginning, because you know what? If you're a heavily armored paladin, maybe you don't want to be on the high seas. I'm don't just going to step off the boat. <laughs> yeah, or you're fine as long as you're on the boat. It's kind of like, you know, you're working with that in net, however. Well, I wanted uh, to point that out, actually, just to build on that, because Dave said something like it's just like an overland adventure, but it's not really. When you're on a ship, any of these, whether you're on a, an ocean-going ship or you're at space or you're underwater, it does change because all of a sudden you're in a situation where if you step off the boat, you oh, probably yeah. die. 
yeah, that's like, some of the uniqueness of it, right? It, it, it flips it, because normally you can walk around wherever you want to go and kind of, if I want to turn left and check out that burrow over there, let's turn left, check out that burrow. And now you're all on a boat looking for islands where you can survive or walk on or have encounters, because I feel like it kind of flips the game around a little bit that way. You know, because now it's, you know, you're, you're on the boat, and if something's flying around or out in the water attacking you from the water, well, you've got to fight it from the boat unless you can fly out there, which probably comes a little later. If you're the paladin in armor and you step off that boat, you are not coming back if you're deep at sea. <laughs> that that paladin's going down faster than he did anyone he better, catch him. He better hope he's got uh, some, some... An aqua lung? Yeah, that knowledge of how the cannons work, right? <laughs> um, I also wanted to say too, Tony, because what you said uh, makes me think of it. Uh, I don't know if you guys noticed with some of my campaigns, at least the ones you played with me, there's generally, uh, I'm right on a seaport, like Slaver's Bay. You guys literally came in via ship. So that was, for instance, that was an avenue that wherever that campaign went, it could have easily turned into a sea adventure if you guys decided to commandeer a vessel at some point or something like that. So a lot of times I'm in seaport areas because it's always an option. So you never know. We can, <laughs> they we can to always sea. go to sea. I mean, we'll be killed by the collars, but we can, if we want to, go to sea. Yeah, well, this is after collars and stuff. You know. So when you're doing a campaign with that type of flavor, where it's at least an integral part of the background, different items and spells have a greater value, like mm-hmm. water-breathing things, mm-hmm. water-walking things. They become very sought after. Like in the Dark Sun campaign, a decanter of endless water, well, that's priceless. I mean, seriously, Excalibur's great, but if I'm stuck in the desert for three days, I'd rather have the decanter. Uh, also, with that, it changes the dynamic of you're not exact. You, ha- you can still attempt to go to point A and point B uh, in terms of railroading and story, but you're also pushing against then the open sandbox if you're at sea. You guys, you can send them in any different direction. There's multiple points, and you kind of have to have a more developed map in that situation. Yeah, I guess that's true, because even while I say you're kind of trapped on the boat, you do need to give them some freedom, because that is what, I mean, traditionally, having a boat means freedom. Mm. You're the, ca- the captain of the boat is king of that boat, literally. That's traditional maritime law. Captain of the boat rules the boat. He's the, whole, he's the judge, jury, and executioner. And the, and the wedding party. And person. he can marry you. And yes, <laughs> yes, which could be all three, depending on how things go. But the Mary boat is... Hill. That's a whole different <laughs> level of that game. But it is, like, it means because having a ship traditionally means freedom. You're out on the high seas where there's no law. You can go wherever you want to go. I'd say that doubles down if you're on if you're on a spaceship. It's even more like that if you're flying between planets. You do have to fill in the map for them to find some stuff. thing is, though, a ship is a little bit like a hostage situation. You're like, what the hell are you talking about, Tony? Well, okay, there's always the threat. You're you're on the high seas and you're exploring. Well, you're attacked on the high seas. And what if this ship starts going, is in a, is in a situation where it may sink? Yeah. Yeah, again, it's like the hostage situation where it's like, okay, well, I'll pull this trigger. Well, after you pull the trigger, it's over. Because then your guys are treading water and... <laughs> You know, I mean, is that necessarily, is that ending the campaign? No, but now you're to get, what your next priority is. Dry land and find another ship. Yeah, not dying. Your next priority is not dying in the middle of the ocean. I will say, like, traditional sailing ships generally did have the stuff on board to patch a hole. I mean, it depends how many holes you get. 
right? But they generally did have, like, the tar and the wood and ways to save the ship if they really in, – in skilled hands to do it. Yeah, but and carpenters and stuff within which to, to patch yeah. these things, absolutely. Which doesn't necessarily mean you get saved. It means you have a chance, right? Sure. I mean, you, you had a shot. But you're right about kind of the hostage situation. I mean, as soon as you said that, I thought about being Shanghai. Because that's what happens when you're on a boat. Like, if someone pulls you onto a boat against your will, you wake up one day on a boat, you're like, you're working on the crew. Why? Because if you don't, we're throwing you overboard and you die. Yeah. There is no other option. You work the crew, you do your job, you you pay respect to the captain, or you go, or you go literally go sleep, sleep with the fishes. It, maybe you're a druid and that's okay with you, but otherwise you're kind of out of luck. But that's kind of that's kind of what the the great thing, and I think partly what attracts people to this type of uh, this type of adventure. Because anyone who's DMing at some point goes, "Oh man, what if I did like a pirate adventure, or I was out in space, whatever, whatever type of RPG you're playing." And I think what it really comes down to, Thorin, I think you you kind of hit on it. It's about extreme conditions. So even in an overland adventure, and I'll pull this back to my campaign with Rhyme of the Frost Maiden, we're talking extreme conditions that you can't just go out and travel and do things. You have to prepare for this kind of stuff. And if you get caught out there unawares or without the proper preparations, you're going to die, much like on a ship or on a spaceship or whatever it might be, a spell jam or whatever. Uh, and I think that's part of the the interesting part of the adventure, that type of adventure, if everyone is, again, quote, on board for it, you know, literally. It's all fun and games. So you're out to sea for six weeks and everyone starts getting scurvy and you're out of food. <laughs> right, and you're out of limes. I mean, that's some serious stuff. Yeah, I don't think uh, create food and water creates limes. I, <laughs> they just found out the reason the cook brought it on board is because it's nice, keepable food. You don't need to feed it and you can throw it in a stew pot at any moment. The party's going ahead <laughs> oh. and named it Nobby. <laughs> Nobby oh. the tortoise. <laughs> oh. Well, if you're going to pitch a seafaring campaign along with that dare i say the hook it's got to be there has to be a motivation of well this is an opportunity to get treasure that would be unavailable in land higher stakes perhaps there has to be motivation because honestly it's easier to adventure on the land that is is on a freaking boat that's true i I think one of those remember that time we starved to death in the forest yeah, that never freaking happened. It was a frozen tundra, which when we got there, it turned out to be an ice waste. We started the DM couldn't that. use the right goddamn term for what we were getting into. <laughs> no, we, we effed that up. I'm going to own that. We I still blame up. the DM. We None of us had the idea that we were walking out in the 10-foot-high glaciers when he told us where we were going. I will tell you, I remember you guys telling me about the, that adventure and how that uh, communication didn't come through. And I took that into the Frostmaiden campaign and made damn sure they understood that if you go out there without preparation, you will die. <laughs> like, that was, like, there was no ifs, ands. I, I repeated it several times over. And there you go. That's why you watch Three Wise DMs. You learn from our lessons. We take our own medicine. We apply them to our own games. To be fair, we didn't starve to death, but it, it, it was really, it was ugly for, at some point. It took us right to the edge of starving and then explained to us why we were idiots. <laughs> it was one of those kind of games. It's it's all fun at games until your duelist just turns cannibal and he's eating dugar. But, you know, we don't want to go there. <laughs> you, you mentioned that, you know, so you got to have a reason to want to go there. And I think that kind of really hits the other side of the of the of the, of the, of the boat puzzle. It's extreme conditions, extreme danger, but also extreme freedom and extreme opportunity. That And again, I keep saying this, that's traditionally why people got on boats. That's why you had sailing explorers. 
because there if you if you could get a commission if you could get a boat and get out on it and go anywhere there was no better way to come back a phenomenally wealthy man and that didn't matter oh. if you were an explorer or you were a pirate i mean you look at like blackbeard settling in the middle of the carolinas with a fleet by the time he was done basically living like a king because he had all the money he would ever need like that's what that's the upside right you get to sail away when we talk about what happens culturally what happens to the society when like say say the say we talked a lot about say the party kills the king well what happens then well you know yeah well then the government fills in and there's just a new king or whatever happens the party doesn't actually get to become king by killing the king yeah. well at sea you do at sea that's just called a mutiny and there's been you know treasure island mutiny on the bounty there's been a lot of books written about it at sea you kill the captain you convince the crew to follow you you're now king of the ship you go collect some more ships, you go find a nice unoccupied stretch of coastland, you're king of Myville, or whatever you want to call that little sandbar. Londinium. Yeah. I'm the captain. Now I'm the captain. Now I'm the captain. And you got to keep them loyal, but that's part of the risk and part of the reward. And that, I think, has to be that has to be part of any kind of seagoing, space-going kind of campaign, is that idea that, okay, you're out here, but you have the chance to do something you never could have done on land. Because somebody's right. It's easier to walk. It's easier yeah. to get some horses and go on land. So why do you get on a boat? Because of the opportunity. And you got yeah, to put that there. Yeah, there has to be a reason that you're getting on the boat, right? You have to, where you are, the, the land that you come from, right, in the beginning of the campaign has to be already civilized, already law and order or whatever. It has to already have been tamed in some way or else, you know, you're, you'll be <laughs> delving in dungeons where you come from, right? So it has to be the myth and the legend of the gold and the treasure and all of this out there across the sea, you know. And the nice thing, though, about it, and we've, we've also gotten on this in other episodes as well, is even if you get on the ship and you start and the characters decide, eh, this really isn't for us anymore, it can easily turn into an overland adventure at any time or a Feywild yeah. adventure or an under, like you said, undersea adventure, anything at any point, it literally can just become a mode of travel. Like Tony utilized in storm Kings where we had our airship, but it was just the way of getting from point A to point B. You said like the final fantasy map style, you know, where, okay, next point, boop, you know, next point of interest kind of thing. Well, that allowed us yet yeah, to really change locations. I'm like, okay, so you've been in the forest for too many games, now you're in the desert. You've been in yeah. too many games in the desert, let's go to the mountains. Oh, there's a swamp. I bet you want to see what's in the swamp. I want to show you what's in the swamp. And you can kind of move around like that. Now, ships versus spell jamming, obviously the argument is, what magic level is your world? If you're in a relatively low-level magic world, then yes, the opportunity is at sea. Like you said, Dave, yeah. If it's a very civilized world, you're playing in the 16th century, then yeah. Go get on that ship and go out there and check it out with the spell jamming ship, which I am a sucker for. I love that old school magical <laughs> ship nonsense. The crystal spears. Well, there's two ways you handle it. You use that to sail to sail you around the whole earth, including the sea, because you hit sea locations in my spell jamming ship. Yeah. Or you're actually the, the universe is your sea, and you're going from planet to planet. And that's as much exploring as you could possibly do, unless you're going through dimensions as well. You turn it into a whole Star Trek-style campaign then, to boldly go where no elf has gone before. 
Right. Except for these space elves you found and the Gith and the Gith Yankee. And you run into the Neoji who want to take you as slaves. And then you find out the Beholders have their own ships and you're like, what? What? (laughs) Can I just say, like, the whole idea of the – just because you said it, like the Astral Sea and the Gith Yankee and Gith – when you read their stuff, it's so horrifying, dude. Like, that's permadeath, (laughs) right? Like, they just fly by and cut your – life force from you like just oh this horrifying oh they're silver swords so that's good stuff yeah if i ever get caught on the astral sea i think i'm just gonna commit seppuku it'll be easier you'll cut your own cord i think i will (laughs) right mind your cord yes (laughs) before the dreadnought shows up you know but that's a whole different kind of sea adventure right but man those were so 80s too like they're like when you start talking about the psychedelic age of comics like it's just like a whole different aesthetic a whole different way to approach the game yeah you could i wish they bring that back so it's pretty cool well, you know, there's a great moment where you're having a sp- you're out there in the crystal sphere with your spell jamming ship, and you guys think you're badass and you're tough, and along pulls up an illithid dreadnought. <laughs> That's horrifying stuff. And the- well, it's- it- it- there's like a squid on the front, and we're like, gee, who could be in there? Mm-hmm. It's all black and purple. There's a giant squid on the front. Tentacles are actively trying to grab your ship. I feel like we you kind of created some of that tension with uh, with Storm King's tone when we had the spelljammer ship pulled by four adult white dragons and the the demigod frost giant inside. T- TSR actually made that spelljamming show. Yeah. I'm like yeah. I'm hijacking that. You just, yeah. that, that. That actually literally came from this period of TSR, the spelljammer period. Man, there's some good stuff in there actually. It's just it's just so out there. It's so it's so psychedelic. You know, it's like it's so psychedelically creative. It's sci-fi without ever stopping being fantasy. And I never played it. Like, I never actually played it. So maybe it doesn't play that well. I don't know. Tony, I think, played a little more than I did. But it just, I don't know. It's got a cool aesthetic. Mm. Well, in the original Spelljammer, too, it really did have a pirate vibe, despite that, where they brought, that's where their first Wheelock pistols appeared mm. and all that good stuff. Yeah. I mean, okay, well, I mean, they, like, you know, Gary <laughs> did some stuff with Boot Hill, too, aside from that. <laughs> so, I mean, all these kind of shipboard games, we've brought it up a few times, but I think we should probably address it a little more directly. What do you do if your players aren't that into it? If you've kind of invested in giving them this cool ship and uh, giving them the freedom of the seas or the space lanes or whatever you want to call it, and they're like, meh, give me back in a cave. What do you do? you got to roll with it. Mm. I mean, really, you're presented with two options. One, you reframe it and say hey guys this is where it's at and here's why and you kind of ramp up your efforts or you roll with it and you're like you know what you want to dock at port like dave said there's the port you've gotten off the ship you want to sell it you know allow that to kind of pivot them into transitioning into buying the castle because selling a ship is a pretty penny it's true no tony i think you hit on it perfectly there it's you have to do a little more digging as to what is actually happening because is it that they're not into the ship or is it that they don't understand or haven't been given the agency to really work with the ship and i'll use our example i'll I'll use the airship example so obviously scott's character the warforged was the one who drove the boat right because he his his core was linked in with the computer system whatever however that worked right 
So he was all in about the ship. That became his baby. He wanted to up this thing, right? He had his own gummy ship, right? The rest of us didn't really have any other than this is our means of locomotion through the world. We didn't really have anything that tied us to it until we got involved in the Spelljammer race, the Arpad race, right? Where now you took it, and this was one of the things that I was talking about earlier, when you had different roles on the ship and you turn those into skill challenge things. So you make it worthwhile for the characters to be invested in what's happening on the ship. And with that, you can better see, are they into what's happening at the ship or is it just a means of locomotion? And then you can decide from there, you know, but it might be that you haven't given them anything to say, do you really dig this? You know, and you want to t- you want to run with it or fly with it or sail, sail. <laughs> you want to sail with it. Go if you're doing it right, <laughs> the ship should be like a sailing lair. Mm. I introduce Pollywood uh, as an item and I let you upgrade the ship. I let you expand the ship and create different rooms and all this different stuff. Yeah. We didn't go as far to that as I would have liked because we cut the campaign short, but. I know. like that idea. That's cool. And I could see where you could have, where you were probably trying to take that in the idea of the floating castle of Brayskull, as it were, right? <laughs> yeah, no, that's absolutely. Because we talked about it in some of the other campaigns. When you get a headquarters, that's cool, man. Like, that's, I don't care who you are, that's super cool. I'm a little torn on the, on the analogy, because I do see it. And you do want them to feel like it's their ship, right? And even in port. Where are they going to yeah. stay? They might stay in an inn, but really, home is the ship, yeah. right? They're going to come back to the ship to be their home. They have to name guess, it, all of that, yeah. Yeah, and even even in, even like you take something in space like Star Trek, they definitely come back to the ship to be home. Everything else is surely, you know, that is that is yeah. kind of where they stay and where they live. On the other hand, I do want it to feel different. Like I want to capture the feeling of you're stranded here if you're if you're stuck at any point. You've got to keep your provisions up. I want to hit that stuff. So they do feel like, okay, no, I got it. We we are we have left civilization and our survival is in our own hands. I want to do those things if I'm putting them on a ship. Yeah. Because otherwise it just kind of gets to be just a floating land. I don't want it to feel just like, oh, okay, this is just how we get around the map. I want them to feel like they're on a ship. And I want them to feel like they can do some shipboard things like attack other ships. Like I definitely want to get, if I'm going to put my party on a ship, I want them to be able to have some 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 ship-to-ship combat maybe capture some other ships. We talked about some encounters they can have, the dragon turtle and things like that, some of these kind of iconic things. I think you want to hit that kind of stuff and make them fight off the ship and figure out how they fight off the ship, even though we've talked about how that can be a little a little awkward for the paladin who isn't made for shooting anything. <laughs> you, want to get, you want them to get into that, right? You want them to kind of figure out, okay, well, where do I fit in here? So it doesn't just feel like a lair where they go, they drop off their stuff, and they, okay, maybe they customize it some. But it's actually something they got to live on and learn to live with. It's like a big mountain in a lot of ways. You, you got to learn to ride the ship and to be a part of the ship and to make and, and, and to take and to be able to use it and take care of it. At the same time, going where you want to go. And I want to give them that freedom. I want to let them kind of feel like they're more free because they have the ship. Yeah, I think you can easily have both of those going. But with like what Tony was saying, I like the idea of it's your lair because that's making you invest in this ship matters so we have to take care of it so if we are going into battle with another ship well now we're taking this ship and it's not just oh it's just just the ship it's the it's the whatever it's the you know the squall right whatever it is the wind squall or whatever 
so it invests the that that tension. It helps in building that tension when you do have encounters because now they're attacking your home as well. That's very well put. And I got all my cool stuff in my quarters, you know, and I don't want to lose my cool stuff. Right? I can't blow up the earth. My stuff's all here. And now you got a tiny earth that you got to take care of, and it's much more fragile. (laughs) Yeah, like, I don't have enough bag of holdings. All my fucking treasure is in my quarters. I can't let it sink to the bottom of the ocean, you know? I would go so far to say is if you're playing some type of game where they're in a ship and they don't care about it, that's a failure. Yeah, it, it's like the crew of the Enterprise being like, "Nah, it's just a spaceship." Ah, blow it up. We'll that, get another one. Which, which they've, they done, they've done exactly that a few times. But it was always it was always a hard decision, though. I mean, <laughs> they made a decision, right? But plenty of letters in the alphabet. Putting in all those prefix codes, and oh my god, they're like that, that's really rough. But also with that, to the original point, with a campaign like this, the ship needs to provide a unique or difficult to obtain form of travel. Mm. So that's part of the tie-in of why you want to do this. Well, the only way you're getting there is by ship. Then I would say, is there a magic portal to get there? Sure. We don't know where that is. Have you seen uh. that? I haven't seen that. We, there are ships if they're able to you know, traverse the seas and all the danger. Yeah, I would actually I agree with that totally. And I think if you're going to have ships, I wouldn't say I would not have magic portals but I would limit them greatly. Like Dave, you did this in Slaver's Bay. Mm-hmm. There were ship, ships were very important. The demon kingdom in Slaver's Bay did have magic portals they were working on, but they had to get a certain kind of mineral. They had to erect them. They had to empower them. Ships were just a lot easier. So like, I Thank think you, you want with them. Oh, never mind. That's, yeah, they had, there's these little blue gems they had to put in them to get them to stand up straight. I don't know. It was really weird. Mm, okay. Just, yeah. just checking. Yeah. It was a whole teleportation network that they were erecting. But first, first they had to get there by boat because it was a port to begin with. Then they could build their portals. So when you're at sea, like what kind of things do you like to challenge them with? I mean, we talked dragon turtles. I definitely want to make them deal with some things that go under the water. You know, some things they can't easily get to without someone doing something, you know, heroic to get down there to it. What do you guys like to throw on them? Storms. And that, that's, that's where the skill challenges come in. I mean, of course, navigation and all that, but I did that with uh, Storm King's Thunder, where, you know, Sarkaloth would send a blizzard at you, and you had to uh, withstand that. And I'd have everybody, pour, you know, dealing with the rigging yeah. and navigating and still driving the ship and not getting lost and all these other things. And that's you know, that's a fun encounter. That That's what I would frame that as. That is an encounter. That's not an entire episode of your game. But, you know, for that versus, you know, just throwing some uh, some fish people at you, I think that's a nice alternative. You'll remember, you know, getting through the storm, and they'll take precautions to avoid them in the future. Well, that was a hag when climbing the side of your boat is uh, an attack at night. is never a bad move either. Right? That's, that's, that's haunting. Yeah, I mean, Leviathan. Just every time, just Leviathan. That's your go-to, there's, huh? That's, that's a little high level there. I guess I got to run, huh? No, no, it's immediately. You leave port at Leviathan. That's why no one's sailing out there. No, um, even though totally Leviathan is out there, right? Of course, Dragon Turtles, right? But again, that's also super high level because those things are 
beast-like. Yeah, um, in the water like that, they're not just yeah. beast-like. It's like they forget have every about advantage. Forget about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm going to go back to this again. Uh, the Frostmaiden campaign, the last session we had, they were actually had had to row out onto the half-frozen lake because they had to uh, research some sort of uh, monster that's been attacking this the fishermen out there. And it turned out to be a plesiosaurus that had been awakened. Right? It was a cool little encounter. Uh, it was much more of a uh, less a fighting encounter and more of a trying to figure way think your way through it, which I liked. But anything that's underwater that you don't really get to get to get to use at any big length, right? At its full, because what can they do? They can just kind of get onto the land portion and then either escape it or get away. You can't get away when you're in its home. So all of the ones, but I like Merfolk. I like. The, I don't know how you guys say it, but the Sahuagin or Sahuagin? This is the Hagwin. The Hagwin. I is like that, them. Is it S-A-H-A-G-U-I-N? I think it's H-U-A-G-I-N. Sahuagin? Something like that. I am not weighing in on those this. Sahuagin. Things. Things. Yeah, those are awesome, though. I mean, that's what they're made for, right? And, of course, the Sea Hag, because I think what I've come to realize is if I have something in every campaign at this point, it's a Hag. It's been in every fucking campaign I've run. It's a hag somewhere. And with this Curse of Strahd one, I have like four. So like, okay, fine, whatever. That's my thing now. Now I'm the That's hag true. guy. You have gone to a hag in every game we've had. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You want to really make them crap bricks off the side of that ship? Bring in some hostile storm giants. There you go. But, but I was going to say that too, Tone, right? Is that it doesn't have to just, like when you're on the water, Everyone's going to go to the things that swim and the merfolk and all of that kind of stuff. That's easy. But everything is an encounter. How much do you want to roll up on the Jolly Roger, you know, made from storm giants or fucking frost giants or something, right? I mean, or ogres or whatever, you know? I mean, anything is possible, you know? What horrors inhabit your seas? The giant ship that swallows other ships, right? I mean... Yeah, oh, but the, like ghost ship, right? Or yeah. whatever, right? Yeah. It just comes up and you know, just just giant jaws come. It comes up behind you and giant jaws crack. Literally, is that literally just like a super like CR fifteen mimic, right? Like, but it's just ship size, right? How about or, or maybe there's the there's the Oasis Island mimic. Mm-hmm. Step out on the island and the mimic starts eating you. Oh God, that's yeah. Wow, that's it. <laughs> Great way to have your players hate you guys or love you. One of the two. It's, it's gonna go. It's gonna go yeah. one way or the other. That's it. One of the things that comes up here that we, you know, as we're talking about this, keep in mind that ship is fragile. Your players may be level twenty and with with ACs of thirty. That ship is not. Like that ship is is kindling if if uh, storm giants start throwing lightning at it. Or a dragon turtle decides to snap it in half. And that's another one of the kind of the hallmarks of the nautical campaign. Ships are they're robust at a certain level. Yeah. But when you start once you get above about level ten or fifteen, they're really just ripe for fireballs. Like it, it, there's nothing no 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 boat wants to deal with a fireball hitting its deck. No yeah. none will do whatsoever. You better hope you got an artificer as you guys like level up so you can turn your boat into like Captain Nemo's Nautilus, right? <laughs> like it's all metal and it can go underwater and shit. Because if not, yeah, it's just a big floating fireball. Well, that's actually another thing. I um I have so I've done a number of ships. We didn't get into it in the beginning, but 
I've given out, I gave out an airship in the fourth edition campaign we had where they uh, killed Cthulhu in part by driving the airship through his squishy head, just like in the book. <laughs> yeah. Killed is very subjective, but yes. Well, no, you put, that was the first combat and you put him back to sleep or on death or however you it, want to say it. We convenienced him mildly. Yeah, apparently he came back a little later. You guys, um, I, I've given out the apparatus of koalas a couple times, and that's always fun to get them down under the water. So now you're having an underwater adventure, especially if they're deep, because you don't go to the bottom of the ocean and back to the top of the ocean in one round. Like, you know, they're down there. Maybe they had to kind of take that down and go explore like a, a shipwreck with that still has some air pockets or something. That is a whole different kind of adventure, too, because once again, you've got them in this space where they're totally where the party is in an alien atmosphere, totally at risk with this one tin can keeping them alive. I've given I've done some boat stuff as well. I have generally found while boats are neat, the party doesn't want to necessarily engage with the piratey stuff, at least the parties I've DM so far. But, you know, in every one of those cases, that apparatus of Qualish got crushed on the party. Uh, that airship eventually crashed and got destroyed. The boat is more fragile than the players once you get to high levels. And I think that's absolutely something you could exploit. Because there is no level that makes you necessarily immune to drowning. Uh, well, maybe for some classes. Uh, in general, though, drowning or being spaced is still a problem no matter who you are. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What creatures can you encounter? Well, anything that has the aquatic keyword. Well, yeah, yeah. And they all want to kill you. Nah, I mean, the Storm Giant encounter may not necessarily be hostile, but it would make them really scare the shit out of them, quite literally. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about, it's like, uh, you guys remember Time Bandits, where's the, where's the boat that's actually the giant's hat? I mean, one of these boats could essentially be a giant shoe if they wanted to be. That's trademark stuff right there. <laughs> <laughs> I think our giant super... CR ship mimic is uh that's our we gotta we gotta stat that out. I, I've seen right. that there are stats on that. There's ah, that, there's it. one of those out there and I have seen it and there's stats on it. And what is the most magnificent creature of them all for the ocean? Aboliths. Cool. Ooh, I've had a good time with Aboliths. Yeah, yeah. Mind control underwater is a pretty powerful combo. I mean, that's right up there with the Leviathan thing. But again, that's like end of the campaign kind of. It's really going deep ball there with that. Yeah. Well, the Aboleth is a high CR, but you can have the players start getting pulled into Aboleth kind of like, you know, like uh, like it's like a, a crime boss or something pretty early. Yeah. Like the Aboleth can get involved with the party early when the party can't harm it yet. Now, we did that, of course. Storm King Thunder does that with yeah. the Kraken, which is yeah. one way to do it. But I feel like Aboleths are a little more interesting that way because the party will catch up to them before the end of the game, you know? Right, right. Dragon Turtle CR 17. Mm, oh, that's yeah. a big turtle. And that's, yeah, that can easily just crunch your ship, you know. So, yeah, you're fine, as Thorin said. But either if you didn't, you know, prepare water walking or water breathing or fly <laughs> or and also fly. Cool. If you don't see land, you ain't getting there in time. You know, yeah, you're going to fly for 10 so minutes and fall into the ocean somewhere, you know. Although I guess you could, if you had a way to float, you could rest in the ocean and then recast it, but that's going to be pretty tricky. Maybe, but then sharks. There's a whole set of questions. You know, say you're Pi from Life of Pi. Can you get a long rest that way and reduce oh. spells while you're floating behind the ship, that the, the rowboat that a tiger's on? There's your uh, there's your solo campaign if you have just one person and they want to do a nautical adventure. It's just Life of Pi. <laughs> Great. Excellent. Yeah. 
You can just attack someone who falls overboard with a bunch of water elementals just because you're mean. I mean, water, yeah. And, and so that's the thing is once you put someone in a boat, everything in the water is now so much more powerful than it would be had they just encountered it in, like, say, a pool when they were in, like, in a dungeon somewhere. Now, all of a sudden, all this stuff has a huge advantage over them. And if you're going out into space, who knows what they encounter? I mean, there's all sorts of crazy space stuff in the uh, you know, space dragons and stuff in like Spelljammer and Forgotten Realms. And then on a on a kind of going further with this too, because this did come as initially a listener asking us about this, and they wanted to have this idea of in essence a pirate type campaign, and starting them at level one and their you know, low level on the crew or something of that nature. Yeah, so, here, so here's the message from Yo-Ho, a pirate's life for me. I'm about to start a homebrew campaign with a nautical setting. The players level one will first be joining an established crew for at least a few quote-unquote contracts. But from there, I fully expect them to become officers and eventually have their own vessel. I'm taking much of the mechanics from the DMG, Ghost of Saltmarsh, in a wicked PDF I found by Googling D&D Nautical Adventures. That might be the one. He doesn't say what that is, but there is one, an unearthed arcana bit on more advanced sailing. Maybe he's talking about that one, or there's probably another one you can find. Story-wise, I have a few contracts to offer them and a handful of chartered islands they can discover. I don't really have a question as much as I'd love to hear all of your takes on running a nautical campaign. So, I mean, that's kind of what we've been going through, but I guess we haven't really talked about the nautical campaign. We talked about, okay, what to do if your players don't want to do it. We've talked about kind of having to flesh things out, but, you know, what do we put in a nautical campaign? Well, the the first thing that it made me think of with the way he, he – uh had framed the question was the idea that comes that they really put it together in Tasha's was the idea of patrons. Mm. So you could easily create the, you know, Isle of Tortuga for your campaign world, right? So in essence, the yeah. pirate island, you're going to have it. It's going to be there. It's the, it's the most Eisley. It's the, whatever it is. It's where they wherever all hang out. Your, your den of scum and villainy is on your, <laughs> wherever, wherever that is, put them there. And then you easily, these ideas of contracts fits into this idea of a patron. So it doesn't just have to be, okay, they're just out sailing across the world. Well, no, they have to go and do this adventure and go sailing and go and do this adventure. So it doesn't even always have to be, to my mind, to be a nautical campaign in this setting, doesn't even always have to be what's happening when you're on the ship at times you can absolutely have stories just like in star trek a lot of the stories happen on the ship but a lot of stories happen when they're on shore leave or when they get to the planet or whatever it might be right yeah same thing your adventure is out there and you can easily just do a travel montage some of the times and then have other things where you have things happening when you're on the water itself it doesn't always have to be always on the water. What am I doing on the water? Water, water, water. Well, that's absolutely true. I think to play into the question a little more, how do you do a nautical campaign? We can delve a little deeper into the details of how piracy worked. Because one of the things we haven't really touched on is the fact that most pirates working like in kind of the golden age of Amer of, of, of world piracy and real world piracy were working on mission. They were bearing letters of mark from either England or Spain or another country, and they were authorized and they were, in fact, required to go prey upon the shipping of enemy nations. England had pirates against the Spanish. Spain had pirates against England. 
and that was the whole deal. Like you, if you saw that their flag was the kind of flag you were looking for, you hoisted the Jolly Roger or whatever your piracy flag was, and you went and you you either sank that ship or you took all their stuff. And that was because that was literally your mission. On the flip side, if we look a little more at like Pirates of the Caribbean, there is an entire English Navy there that is tasked to stop the pirates. And people have the mission to go apprehend Captain Jack Sparrow and go catch the Black Pearl. So you can have a nautical kind of game. I mean, there's a couple ways to do it. You can have it just wide open, right? You're just a free pirate or maybe you're a pirate bearing mark from a country, but you're in charge of finding stuff and getting them. You're Blackbeard. And if you're smart enough, you know what to do with Blackbeard. You know to go out, capture as many ships as you can, build your own navy, and then you become king, eventually settle as a king somewhere in, you know, the undiscovered, not sure it's got discovered, but the underpopulated continent of America. If you have good, if your players are very self-directed, you can do that. But if they're not, you can either have them be pirates who are being given missions to go knock off this ship or that ship that was seen in the vicinity. And then your venture becomes around, find the ship, take the ship, somehow capture the ship without destroying it, get your cargo back and get paid. Or you're on the flip side, you're on the side where you're working for a government and maybe your mission, your mission could change. You can have a government agent somewhere in the town you go talk to. Mm. And maybe one mission is, okay, hey, the Spanish the, the Spanish galleon is here. Go get its gold. Another mission may be, hey, this pirate we gave a mark to has started doing horrible things. You've got to go take him in. And that's how you can kind of string together a nautical campaign that isn't totally self-directed. It is driven by missions, but it's still very nautical and very pirate-like, you know? That's a... Uh... That I never uh, knew that portion of it. Oh, that's interesting. So it was almost like a guerrilla warfare on the high seas. Oh, yeah. Letters of Mark. Uh, almost every pirate you've heard of at one point started as a commissioned. They're not commissioned officers, but you get a letter of Mark from the queen to go prey right. on, the, on the enemy shipping. That letter of Mark gives you right to do it, and it means you're covered differently. So for, for starters, if the English Navy picks you up as a pirate, you show them your letters of Mark, and like, well, they let you go. And, you know, even if you were if even if you prayed on a ship, you shouldn't have, you know, they just you know, slap you on the wrist and let you go because you're working for them as part of the war effort. If you have letters of mark and you are captured by the other side, they may or may not respect it, but you are a combatant in war. So they should have to follow whatever the rules are of that war, which is much different from just being a random pirate who they're going to put in a uh, crow's nest hanging over the ocean to, to, to die, to die slowly. Like huh. it's like, like if you're if you have a letter of mark. They should take you in as a prisoner and deal with you that way. So it's, it was actually really important to have a letter of mark. It also would help you get a ship in the first place. Like you might get a letter of mark and a ship. Then all that stuff is kind of stuff you can work into a campaign. Mm. I think how I'd approach an article campaign is I'd still have my basic structure of how I'd run each of my games. Okay, we're going to have X amount of combat over a series of encounters. I want to have a role play, but this changes things. I'm going to have a role play on the ship. Or we're going to have it on the island. It's just on shore leave. Then I introduce it there. And then the travel is now a factor. You could hypothetically spend a whole game traveling. That's possible. Maybe you spent the, your role play provisioning and so forth and so on. That just adds the flavor of the dynamic and how you need to juggle and manage your game. And so it's really kind of a couple different ways to do it, right? I mean, you you really kind of would treat the ship as how do you get from here to there and still treat it as more or less a normal D&D campaign that is occurring on islands or other places you get to by ship, right? There's other dynamics that could play in. Like, for example, is this a party of rogues I'm dealing with? Mm-hmm. Are we explorers? It really depends what direction. Are they anti-pirates? What are they looking to do? 
So that does help shape it. But I would the ship has to be integral to each of the sessions and they have to care about it. Aside from the fact that when it gets icebergs, you know, and uh, they're all <laughs> swimming home. Tony, that's a great point uh, that I don't think gets mentioned enough. When people talk about nautical campaigns, what are they always talking about? Talk about pirates, right? But like more things happen on the seas, right, than just piracy. So, for like you just said, explorers or archaeologists or something like it doesn't have to. I mean, most people are going to do pirates, right? Fine. That's cool. Who doesn't want to do pirates? But it doesn't have to be either. And if people aren't into necessarily pirates, they might still be into a nautical campaign in some way or a campaign on the seas if the focus is different, too. So that's something to also keep in mind. Or as Thorin, you were saying with these ideas of the, like the letters of Mark and in essence working for these governments, that can change to be all the different types of normal D&D campaigns that we talk about to political intrigue campaigns or just kicking open doors and taking names campaigns. It could be all of those as well because you can have all of those machinations playing behind if you like that stuff as well, which I think is actually really cool. Yeah, anything can be a mission, really, to, to, to lean into what the players want to do. It doesn't always have to be go capture the ship. I would make a few of them that, just so you can play with the mechanics, because otherwise, you know, why are you on a pirate ship? Why am I on a ship? Yeah. Yeah, why am I on a boat? Yeah, at least give them something, so let them play with the boat stuff so they understand how that works. But then, yeah, you lean into what they want to do. Tony brings up that interesting aspect that they can be explorers, they can be botanists, they can be archaeologists. I love that. The only tricky thing, it's not even tricky, but the only thing there is it does depend on how exploratory your party is. Because you, if you're going to build a map out with all those kinds of things and introduce them, hopefully they follow those. Some parties are more mission-driven, in which case I think it might be better to just give them the stuff. You know, right. Here, your contact says go do this, and you get yeah. a, you, you, we'll, we'll advance your rank to captain, to whatever is above captain. Um, I apologize. Super captain. Just failed me now. <laughs> I believe that would be Admiral, sir. No, because it's not Admiral until you have a fleet. But I guess if you captured enough ships, you could, well, be, you could be like Rear Admiral, right? Or something what like that. we talked about before, too, that just brings it up. You know, you have your leveling and you have your new toys and shiny abilities. You also have, like, your name levels and things like that. You yeah. could start to put that stuff in, you know, like you just did with Woodstock, <laughs> where you put us as the Wardens of the East, you know? Yep. And some of these, like, titles and lands and, and you know, things that – matter you know whatever in the world you know those are things you can add in with this as well especially if it's dealing with fleets or anything yeah so you know we've been talking about piracy and nautical campaigns for quite a while here what do you guys think what are your final thoughts on uh running ship-based campaigns whether you're at sea at space or in uh, some other area you can do it in the desert you can be on a sand ship in a desert it can be the same kind of thing depending on how arid it is you know you could have dogs pulling your sled or like in Hyperion, you could have the ship that goes in the high grasses, you know? <laughs> so what are you guys' final thoughts from this episode? Uh, when introducing it in the beginning, I would make the intentions very clear. And if you're going through the game and it starts to lead in the direction the players aren't super fond of, give them an opportunity, dare I say, to get off the ship. This does give them a chance to go in a lot of different directions. This is a sandbox they, they're very curious. They can have their different motives if they want to be pirates, if they want to be explorers. I ran one game where they sailed across the ocean, had numerous ocean encounters and what have you, hit some small islands that didn't existed, and then got to their actual destination, which was several games of exploring ruins. 
Yeah. And then they sailed back. So there's a lot of different ways you could spin it. You're not really penned into doing any one specific formula. But the players have to care about the ship, or what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Just screw uh, that Enterprise. I mean, <laughs> Tony, I would I would back up on that before I, I say my points. Yeah, when we think about nautical campaigns, most of the time people are approaching it like it's water world, right? Like, like land is just this myth that you can find at the end of the campaign. Instead of like, well, no, you're actively sailing to places, you know, like things can happen on land too. Um, but regardless. So that's kind of my first point though. Uh, it is still just a D&D adventure. Uh, you do have extreme conditions and those extreme conditions can take lots of forms. We talk about space, underwater, on the water, frozen tundra, whatever. Extreme conditions that create more danger and have to have the party be prepared for those things. Um, you need to, in, if you're gonna be on a ship, you need to invest them in the ship. They need to be invested in it because it has to matter. I like Tony's idea of the floating layer because what it does is it increases the tension if you're entering battle with it or if it comes into danger. It's almost another part of the party. It's another member of the party that people have to take care of. Um, and finally, uh, the idea of patrons, the idea of being able to do fetch quests almost for especially a beginning party to see if they like this. Because first, I would definitely pitch this idea. I wouldn't just throw them into a nautical campaign if they don't know that they're going into that. Uh, but if they're into that, this is a way to test the waters so that you don't have something like the Underdark fiasco Tony had where they're like, yeah, let's do this. Eh, it's really dark down here. Can we go topside? You know, so. <laughs> So for me, you can run a nautical campaign in a lot of ways that aren't really nautical. I'm going to lean the other way because I think, you know, I mean, yeah, you can get on a boat and go take them through and go take the use the boat to get dungeon to dungeon. Sure. Does it really feel nautical? Does it really feel like a, right. like I, does that really feel different? I want it to feel different if I'm going to lean into a nautical campaign. And the things to me that would make it feel different are these. You know, you want to give them stuff that you can only do on a boat, the ship-to-ship -ship type stuff, the, you know, um, piracy kind of stuff. Yeah, and maybe it is sometimes you're going other places to do things on land, because you're absolutely right. I mean, you're going to sail your ship to a, from island to island, too, so that's all fine. But, you know, if your ship's going into a foreign port, you're going to need to worry about how do I disguise it? How do I go in under false papers and things like that? Two, I would lean in more to the ship upgrade kind of idea and maybe getting some boats to have a fleet. Maybe start them off with a smaller ship that's only got a few cannons and give them the chance to capture bigger ships so they can upgrade the ship as they go up in levels, things that are pretty cool. I would also be conscious of trying to keep the weapons available on the ship, somehow help them keep pace with the spells and the damage the players can do otherwise. Because you want what they're doing from the ship to be neat. You don't want it to be like, oh, yeah, the cannon does 2D10, but my fireball does 8D6. Why do I ever want to shoot a cannon? You know, you want to you want to kind of have the, the, the weapons available to be cool enough. Although, as Tony said, maybe your crew shoots the cannon and you fire the fireball. That's, that's certainly in play, too. But you want it to be cool enough that that stuff's interesting and makes them want to really pay attention to the boat. I think there's a lot of potential in this kind of campaign and a chance to do a lot of things that you don't normally do in D&D. But as both you guys have said... You got to make sure your 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 party is up for it, and it really does beg for a session zero. So make sure everyone's on board with what you want to do, because if not, yeah, maybe you still include the boat, but you just make it a little less nautical. You make it a little more as a way to get from adventure to adventure. You know, there's other ways to do it. We've done that. We've all done that with airships and stuff like that. So that's my two cents, guys. Thanks a lot for uh, talking about this. This is a lot of fun. I want to go out on a boat now.
It makes him walk the plank and get scurvy. <laughs> they bring <laughs> they bring the tall ships to Bristol every now and then. Bristol is near us. Maybe we should go record on a tall ship one of these days. And also, I would like Jeremy Crawford to weigh in on this, on his sage advice, and say, does create food and water provide the vitamin C necessary so you don't get scurvy? I mean, we well, need to know these things. You know? you say, are, you say, are you implying that create food and water doesn't create limes? I'm... It says it creates bland food that is nourishing, but I mean, does it create citrus? I don't know. I'll tell you what. I think if you have good berry, I think good berry protects against scurvy. I'll give you good. Well, bring a druid. Bring your druid. I have a fucking ship druid. Every ship comes with a druid. (laughs) What are captain, first mate, bosun, carpenter, druid, mate for a deckhand? That sounds good. It's been a good time of us talking about this. Thank you, guys. And thank you, everyone listening from home. Once again, uh, we really appreciate all the all the patronage you've given us, all the support you've given us. We appreciate all the questions you've sent us. And this question came in on the What's Your Problem field on our website from Eric. Eric, thank you for sending in this great question. We had a great time talking about it. If you're listening and you want us to answer your question, you can either go to 3wisedms.com and enter it in the What's Your Problem field, or you can email us at 3wisedms at gmail.com. Or talk to us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're very active in all those places. And if you like what you're hearing here, please smash that five-star rating button. Leave us a good review. Tell your friends. We've been growing by leaps and bounds. And it's all because you guys have been helping support us, helping spread the word. Thank you so much for doing that. And we hope you continue to do it. That's it for this week. We'll see you next time on Three Wise DMs.